If you got your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 29. Uh, some jobs require uh, way more preparation than others to perform. You know, a welder requires a, a great amount of skill and, 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 a great, and a great amount of talent, but, but the time involved in becoming a welder and the time involved in becoming a doctor is, is vastly different, and it's for a reason that is so different. It's not just because of the... The, the, the degree of difficulty, but it's also because of the sacred nature of the work itself. When you talk about being a doctor, lives are constantly at stake. The level of preparation, therefore, must rise to, to meet the occasion. And a similar case can be made for the text in which we're studying today. As we look at chapter 29, we are looking at a chapter about the consecration of the priests. We talked last week about the garments of the priests and the significance of those garments. Today, we're going to talk about the consecration. And there is extensive, uh, extensive work involved and extensive preparation involved in the consecration of these men. And the reason that is, is because they are dealing with the divine. And since they are dealing with the divine, it requires greater preparation. Starting at verse 1, let's look together, and I want you to read this with me, beginning at verse 1 through verse 9. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and you shall make them of the fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron, put on Aaron the coat and the robe of ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall see that set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. And you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. And then you shall bring his sons and put his coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by statute, by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. May the Lord add a blessing to the hearers, readers, doers of his holy and Aaron and infallible word. Verse 1 establishes for us that this is not just a suggestion from God, but this is a requirement from God. He says, hey, put these things in order or prepare these things in order that they may serve me. This is what you shall do in order that they may serve me. They cannot serve me unless these things are done. And I feel like it's important to just stop there. Just talk about the fact that this preparation is a requirement for this job. No less will do. If you're going to be my people, if you're going to be my priest, then they are going to perform, if they are going to perform this job, then this is what they will do. I'm constantly fascinated by how many Christians in our time and in our place in the world insist on saying that they serve God and yet have no qualms at all with announcing that service, that service is going to be on their terms. You can practically pick any subject as it relates to uh, the Christian faith, whether it be marriage or money or sexuality or kingdom service or connection to our local church or Christians 
are, are, who are called first to serve God seem to have no issue dictating to God what they will hear and what they will ignore in any of those areas. And that is fascinating to me. Because God doesn't, when God lays out his mandates, he doesn't lay them out as optional. He doesn't lay them out and say, hey, pick whichever one you're comfortable with. He's not going to Aaron or he's not going to Moses and he says, and saying to Moses, hey, tell Aaron and, and his sons, if they really don't like the way I designed the ephod, they can throw that out. No, he's saying, if they're going to be my priests, if they're going to be of my service, or if they're going to serve me, then this is the way that they will serve me. And I find it fascinating that we don't seem to view God that way. One of the first lessons that we need to establish when describing living a Christian life in service to the living God is that God is the one who sets the terms. We are called to obey. In other words, we are called to listen and to trust. A Christian that goes to God and says, okay, I've looked over everything in your word and I've looked over the mandates and the commandments and I'm cool with this one and I'm cool with this one and I'm cool with this one, but not so much this. It's a little outdated and antiquated and not so much this and not so much that. So how about we just set our relationship terms based on the things that I'm feeling and not so much on the things that I'm not feeling and in exchange, God, you can look after me and protect me and keep me and bless me when I call on you. The Christian who says that to themselves is living a false Christianity. Saints of God, that Christianity is foreign to the Bible. It may be popular in our culture, in a culture that says, hey, just follow your own way and do your own thing. Let, let your heart guide you wherever it will but it is foreign to scripture. You're not switching up insurance providers. You're not picking up a personal trainer. You are entering into covenant with the holy God of the universe, the God who holds all things together in galaxies known and unknown with the sound of his voice. We enter into holy covenant with him, ready to serve him. In whatever way he has laid out for us to do so. So if I were to ask you right now, how did your view, how did, how did, how do you view your relationship with the Lord today, rather? What would your answer be? Is it with a commitment, albeit imperfect, to serve him on his terms? Or is it with a commitment to serve him on yours? How do you view God? Is it transactional? Yes, God, I'll do a few of these things in, in hopes that you'll do these things. Or is it in submission? God, just wherever, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, however you want to use me, I'm open and available. Because you are my God. And I am your servant. I am your child. In addition to this clear mandate in verse 1, however, we, we also have this, this, the details in terms of consecrating Aaron and his sons. And again, consecrating them God's way in order that they may serve as God's 
priests. And we get the actual details of what this looks like throughout the chapter. We hear, first of all, that it's going to involve one sacrificial bull. We also hear that it's going to involve two sacrificial rams. And then we hear that it's going to involve breads and cakes and wafers that are mixed with oil and fine wheat flour and have no leaven in them. And it's also, also going to involve the garments that we talked about on last week, the garments that God has specifically designed for the priest to wear. And there are two other noteworthy things that are happening in this text as we are reading it. First in verse 4, look, what verse, look with me in verse 4. It says, you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. You shall bring them to the entrance, but don't go in. Don't go in. In preparation to go in and in preparation to wear the garments that have been specifically and divinely prepared for them, Aaron and his sons are to be washed, rinsed with water. This ceremony represents a cleansing of sorts. The priest can't go in dirty. They need to be clean. Not only externally clean, but internally clean clean, as we'll see here shortly. Another thing that we notice in this text is found in verse 7. It says, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. So, before they go in, they have to be cleansed, they have to be anointed. This is a sign of ordination, a sign of appointment. This is a sign of God's choosing someone to fulfill a role for him. In other words, you can't just clean up anybody and send them in. Only those that have been anointed to go in can go in. Does that make sense? But this is also a a sign of calling and a sign of sanctification. God is setting someone aside for his divine purposes. Not only can we not call anyone else to go in, but when that person goes in or when that person is anointed, they are exclusively for God's use. In other words, they have to live a different life entirely because they are now dedicated, literally dedicated to God. So when we see this anointing oil, we should think about calling and sanctification and we should think about ordination and appointment. But also when we see this anointing oil, we are are supposed to see this as representative of God's spirit resting upon the one who has been anointed. Because with, God, because with God's choosing and God's calling and sanctifying also comes God's enablement. So God chooses, he appoints, he, he sets aside, but he enables. So the anointing oil represents that God's spirit will rest upon that person who has been anointed. Does that make sense? The psalmist actually captures this moment in Psalm 133. He says this in 133, beginning at verse 1, Beloved, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. What is he saying? He's saying that brothers dwelling in unity 
like the blessing that Aaron is given, the spirit enablement that Aaron is giving, the anointing that Aaron is given from the oil running from the head down to the beard, brothers that are dwelling in unity, that's what that's like. They're receiving the blessing of the Lord and the anointing of God, the spirit enablement of God. So this is what it looks like at the entrance, right? And then you begin to see these words about the actual, the, the actual sacrifices involved. So, there's a couple of things. The priests, let's recap, they were washed with water. After they were washed with water, they were dressed from head to toe with the garments divinely inspired by God. After they were dressed, they were smelling good, they were looking good. Then they get the oil, right? They're smelling good, they're looking good. Externally, everything's great, and yet, they're still not clean. Because the greatest work of cleaning always takes place on the inside. And so there is a work that has to happen after this. Of course, we can devote a lot of attention to the external adorning, but the internal cleansing is without question the most important for us to pay attention to. And thus, the Lord's instruction moves from the cleanliness of the outside of the priest to the cleanliness of the inside of the priest. Let's look at verse 10 together. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar and you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull, and its skin, and its dung, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Phil Riken says of this moment that the significance of the sin offering is powerfully demonstrated by the actions of the priests. He says that before Moses kills, killed the bull, the priests gathered around to lay their hands on its head. And this identified them with the sacrifice. This was an imputing of their sin or the imputing of sin from the priest to the bull. Theologians would call this a case of transference in which the unholiness and the impure nature of the priesthood are transferred to the animal. And then Phil Riken continues and he says this, what happened to the sacrifice is what should have happened to each sinner. As the priest watched the bull burn on the altar, the bull on which they had laid their own sinful hands, they realized that they were the ones who deserved to die. God was executing his death penalty against their sin. But in his mercy, he allowed the bull to serve as their substitute, dying in their place, end quote. Did you hear that? As the priests watched the bull burn on the altar, the bull on which they had laid their own sinful hands, they realized they were the ones who deserved to die. This bull represents them. This bull represents their sin and the absorption of their sin. Verse 15 through 18, we hear about 
the ram, the first ram. Let's read it together. Then you shall take one of the rams and Aaron and his sons. And you shall kill the ram and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash, and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is the burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. So we have this sin offering. We have this burnt offering where everything is burned on the ram. There is nothing left. Remember, it, we just read a few verses ago that the flesh, the dung was put on the outside from the bull. But the ram, we're burning the whole thing. And we're sprinkling the blood. Instead of sprinkling, sprinkling it on the horns of the altar, we are now sprinkling it on the sides of the altar. In other words, the altar is going to be covered completely with blood. That's important. Let's look at this third offering. Verse 19, you shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the right tip, and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, and on the tips of the right ears of his sons, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the great toes of their right feet, and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Again, we started at the horns, now we're dashing the sides with blood. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and on his son's garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his son's garments with him. Now this ram is actually for Aaron and his sons. Again, the hands are laid on the animal as a sign of transference, transference, transferring the guilt of the people or the guilt of the priests to the animal. But now instead of the blood going to the altar first, it is going on Aaron and his sons. We see it start at the right ear, then on the thumbs of the right hands, then on the big toe of the right, fit, right foot then to the altar, but it doesn't stop there. From the altar, now it's on the garments and on them being sprinkled and dashed, blood and oil, anointing oil. Now this feels a little horror movie-ish, right, for our sensibilities. But what is happening here? Well, this represents the cleansing that we talked about. There's an internal purification that is being represented in what's happening here. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, we've read it several times together since we've been walking through Exodus. But Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. So this is purification that's happening. The blood on the altar the blood around the altar, now the blood on Aaron, the blood on his sons, the blood starting at his ear, to his thumb, to his toe, the blood on his garments, all of this is cleansing them. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Justice must be served. And if we will not represent, if we will not be the ones that have absorbed that justice for sin. 
then something else must. And so it is the bull and the rams that absorb the justice of God with the shedding of blood. But the other thing, another thing is happening here. God says, sprinkle this blood or put this blood on your ear, your thumb, your big toe. What is happening here? By placing the blood at all these different levels of the man, God is communicating that the whole man belongs to me. From the top to the bottom, every part of this priest is dedicated and consecrated for my use, for my service. Nothing in this priest escapes my use and my service. He is completely and wholly dedicated to me. And not only in this, now, in this moment, but throughout generations. Why? Because Aaron, the lineage of Aaron, inherits the role of priesthood. So he's saying that you, not only you, Aaron, and not only the sons that you have, but your son's sons and their sons, all of you are dedicated wholly to me. Now, here's another question for you this morning. Where else do we see consecration happening in Scripture? It's a couple of places. Number one, we see it happening in Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Verse 21, it says this, Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in a bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. You say, well, how is that consecration like the priest? Well, we talked about the priest before they enter into the tent. They're to be what? Washed. Baptism, Jesus being baptized, was a washing. Not, not because Jesus was unclean, but ceremonially, he was taking the role of high priest. So he's being washed with water in his baptism. And then we talked about also before they gain entry, there's oil that they are used, that is used to do what? Anoint them. And we said that oil represents what? The Spirit of God. But guess what happens after Jesus is baptized? The Spirit of God comes down and rests. What is that about? Again, Jesus is taking the role of high priest. Jesus is being set aside as the high priest of the new covenant. And this high priest is the last high priest, as we've been talking about. There are no other high priests to come. There, are no other, there is no other blood to be spilled. This happens once and for all. And this high priest, as we have discussed, petitions God the Father on your behalf, like the high priest before him. But this high priest petitions God on your behalf from a space of perfection. This high priest petitions God on your behalf as God, petitioning God. And thus he is the final high priest. There is no other high priest left or required. Now, where else do we see consecration like this? Not only in Christ, but we also see it in us. We see it in us. Why do you say that? Well, because you and I were washed. 
Our baptism is a symbolic gesture of our washing, the reality of being cleansed from sin, ceremonially washed. Now, if you've lived long enough with you, then you realize that that's reasonable. If you've lived long enough with you, then you realize that's reasonable. I should be washed. You above anyone else know that you have enough dirt that needs to be washed from your life. If you are sitting in here this morning and you're saying to yourself, well, I don't need to be washed, you don't know you well enough. Your thoughts are twisted. You assign the worst intentions to people only to find out that you were wrong about them. We all think too highly of ourselves at times and think too lowly of others at times. We all lust and we crave. We silently envy the success and the prosperity of others. We silently badmouth their promotions or talk down about their talents. We are, and not only are our our thoughts twisted, but, but our deeds are twisted. We declare that we are doing the thing for one reason while all along doing it for an entirely different reason. But we don't want anybody to know that reason because then they would think less of us. We are too easily angered. We are too easily frustrated. We withhold generosity at times from those who need it. We hold grudges from, at times when we should be letting them go. We choose not to forgive even after God has forgiven us of so much. And God tells us and instructs us that we must forgive. We can't control our tongues. We pursue unhealthy relationships in our lives. We give into peer pressure to do things that make less of our God and make more of our world. You and I are in need of cleansing. If we know ourselves enough, then we know that a little sprinkling on us won't hurt. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, it says, He saved us, God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. When God saved you, he cleansed you. And when you go into the waters of baptism, it is a representation of that cleansing. And not only has he cleansed you, but he is continually cleansing you. It says in 1 John chapter 9, if we confess, I'm, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This leaves us in a position of being able to approach the throne of God, accepted not based on our own merit, but based on the cleansing that has happened. So we go in through the entrance. Why? Because we've been washed. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Go into the entrance with our hearts sprinkled clean, with our hearts washed. We've been washed so we can enter. But not only have we been washed, we've been clothed. Remember the high priest, they get washed, and then the high priest, they get clothed with the garments that are specially crafted and divinely inspired for them. We have also been clothed. 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, washed, have put on Christ, been clothed by Christ. So we were baptized and we were clothed with the robe of righteousness through that comes through the Son. So no matter how dirty we are, we've been cleansed by Christ. No matter how dirty we are, we've been clothed by Christ or clothed with Christ. And we have also been anointed like the priests. So they were washed, they were clothed, they were anointed, and so we too have been washed, clothed, and anointed. How have you and I been anointed? Well, you and I have been anointed with the Spirit of God. Today is the day that the church celebrates Pentecost, the arrival of the Holy Spirit into the world. And regarding the Holy Spirit's arrival, remember Jesus told his disciples, wait, wait here, and you shall receive power from on high. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall receive divine enablement to fulfill the calling that I've given you. You shall receive divine enablement to, to live out, right, the purposes in which I have assigned to you. And so I have called you, I have appointed you to this task, but the Spirit will come and give the enablement. So do not leave until you receive the enablement. You see that? God has anointed us with his Spirit for whatever purposes that he, is a, that he has given and assigned to us. First John chapter 2, verse 20 says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to others who believe. For Jews demand a sign, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ. And somehow or another, I don't have the rest of my text that I wanted to read to y'all. But there's something there about the Spirit. I'm sorry about that. So you are not only made righteous by God through cleansing and through robing, but you are anointed by God through the Spirit of God to fulfill God's calling on your life. You understand that? So, last thing, sacrifices. Remember, the priests washed, clothed, anointed, and then what? Sacrifices. Where does your sacrifice come from? Where does your sacrifice come from? Jesus, like the bull, like the two rams who the priests laid their hands on, we lay our hands upon who? Christ. We lay our hands upon Christ in faith and a transference of sorts happens. Through faith, our sins are placed upon who? Christ. Romans 3 tells us that he is the propitiation 
that he became our propitiation, our substitutionary sacrifice. The transference of our sins has been, has been applied on him. And thus, when he died, judgment, our judgment that was due us, was placed on him. Some of you right now are literally paralyzed. Some of you may be watching are literally paralyzing your relationships with God. Paralyzing your relationships, not moving forward at all with God because you believe your sin has stopped you from having present or having um, fellowship with God. But in Christ, there is cleansing. In Christ, there is a robing. There is a putting on of righteousness. In Christ, there is an anointing and an appointment for his service. And in Christ, the weight of your sin has been transferred to him by faith. You don't have to stop moving forward, saints. All you have to do is to take your sin to the Lord in prayer. The one who has died on your behalf absorbs your sin, leaving you with the opportunity for fellowship with God the Father. And to what end does God do all of this? To what end does God cleanse us? To what end does God robe us? To what end does God anoint us? To what end does God offer sacrifice through Christ for us? To the same end as the priests of the Old Testament, to the end of consecrating us for service, to the end of making us all dedicated priests. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, but you are a chosen race. We've read this several times as we've walked through this text or walked through Exodus. A royal priesthood. How do you become a royal priesthood? Because Christ. And through Christ, you've been washed, you've been robed, you've been anointed, and blood has been spilled on your behalf. Revelations chapter 1, verse 6 says that God has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We have been made priests through the sacrificial work of our high priest, Jesus Christ, in order to be used for his divine service. We have been consecrated, not through bulls and rams, but through the blood of the Holy Lamb of God in order that we might commune with God and serve him with everything we have. And it is that blood, the blood of Christ, that was sprinkled on us, that purifies us for service to God. And it was that blood that was not just sprinkled on us or on an altar, but it was that blood that was sprinkled on your ear, sprinkled on your thumb, sprinkled on your big toe, meaning that the whole person is dedicated in service to Jesus Christ. Scripture says you were bought with a price. Your whole body thus should be dedicated to God. How many of you will pray this prayer fervently from the depths of your soul this morning and this week? Lord, with your spirit, whatever you want me to do, I will fight to do. Wherever you want me to say, I will strive to say. Wherever you want me to go, I will strive to go. And whatever you want me to quit, I'll strive to stop. 
because my whole self is dedicated to you. Through Christ, my whole self has been consecrated for your service. How many of you will pray this prayer? Lord, just use me. I am at your service. My whole self is yours. Your son has paid for me. I pray that it, I pray that, that I pray this prayer, that I join you in praying this prayer, and that we honor the sacrifice of our God. We honor the sacrifice of the lamb who spilled his blood and paid the price, not just for our salvation, but for our service to him. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you. And we give you-